you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 12. We were in Romans 12 last week, and we're going to be there today too, and a little bit of next week as well. How many of you guys, you don't have to raise your hand, did you fill out your spiritual gifts surveys? All right. Anybody not gifted? No, I'm teasing. That's a joke. Uh, we, uh, here, here's what I would like to do with those, if you will. Uh, Brother Joey is in the back. Um, if you would like to, we've got some little sheets. Uh, you may have brought your uh, assessment survey back. And if you haven't gotten one yet, maybe you're visiting today, there's some sheets back there. You can take that spiritual gift survey, grab one of those as you leave. But if you need to write those down, here's what I would like. And Joey, uh, if you need a sheet to write your three, top three gifts down, would you raise your hand this morning? Joey will come around and give you something. I, here's what I would like. I would like some of the results back from you guys. And the, the intention behind that is so that I can uh, pretty much see some of the giftings that you have, uh, be able to relate better and help maybe minister to you better and shepherd better, uh, but also so that I would like, I would like to, so that I can uh, write a note just to you and say, you know, whatever it is, I see this in you, maybe this is how you can develop this, this is evident, you're already doing an excellent job with this, uh, if you think about it, maybe you could plug this gift in here, whatever that is. So um, if you will, Miss Kathy's going to be back in the back today at the welcome desk, right Miss Kathy? Um, and uh, she will, she has an envelope, okay? Here's the deal, and, I, and I've, I've been told to make this evidently clear. Uh, we're not putting up there, uh, Lowell Maloney has these three gifts, and everybody's going to look at Lowell's gifts and say, oh man, I knew it, I knew it about him. Uh, no, nobody's going to see these, okay? Kathy's going to put them straight in an envelope. The only person that will see these things is me. If that matters to you, I want you to know that there's some, uh, some privacy and security in that. Uh, at the same time, after I'm done with them, I mean, we'll get rid of them. I'll, I'll shred those. But uh, I just want to know, okay? And I want to be able to hand back to you and say, uh, Brother Terry, uh, Miss Cat, whomever, uh, these things are evident in your life and just maybe speak a blessing over you and help you to know. With all of that said, uh, if you choose not to turn them in, no harm done, no, no foul whatsoever. Uh, that's between you and the Lord. Uh, my whole point in doing this spiritual gift survey, which we started last week, is so that you may know more fully how the Lord has equipped you, what to do with those gifts, and then to put them into service in God's kingdom. That's it. And so, with all that said, uh, in Romans chapter 12, today we're going to look at verses 3 through 8, okay? And uh, I'm not going into the individual gifts this week. And you're like, oh man, I thought that's what we were doing today. I I'm doing that deliberately. I want to be able to talk to you about some of the attitudes that you should have as you use those gifts. And so, um, let me ask you, I'll start out with this question, and I think... Uh, even though I've heard it gets worse and worse the older you get, that there are at least two very special days that almost everyone looks forward to each year. What would you guess those two days are? Christmas and what? Easter? Hey, that's a better answer than what I have, okay? That's, that's the best answer. What would be another one that just people everywhere in the world look forward to? Birthdays, right? Miss Marilyn, yeah. All right, so... Why? Why do you like? Why do you like Christmas, Teresa? Because it's the birth of Jesus. Yeah, all the Sunday school answers come out in church, right? That's right. Well, what else about Christmas? 
tradition and family. What's another gift? Brother Terry, what do you like about Christmas? Yep. Amen. Yep. That's right. Plus, Miss Donna's cooking. I'm sure you could probably amen to that. Uh, the openness, the people that are friendlier, the kindness that ex- is exhibited around Christmas time. Um, you know what? The kids already left. Otherwise, it'd be presents. You know, that'd be shouted out, right? The gifts, uh, birthdays, and Christmas, really. And, 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 and for that sense, I'm just talking about worldly, uh, what we like. I mean, Easter is the most... Easter and Christmas are really the two most important days uh, in Christendom because of what they represent. But I would say, too, uh, the well wishes, the kindness, like Terry said, the, the traditions of... Um, what we're used to and it it reminds us of family and growing up and good memories and good days Uh, I think also a lot of it is just the acts of kindness that are done towards us Um, and I remember speaking about Christmas and I know a lot of you guys are probably this way but um, we lived out in the sticks in Hackett, Arkansas, not even in the city limits of Hackett, Hackett was about 375 people, Uh, I mean we were in the middle of nowhere and I'll swear to my dying day, when I was about five years old, my dad took me outside. And I know now that it was really an airplane, but it had that red flashing light, and I knew Rudolph was coming, all right? I mean, I just knew it. And he's like, there he is, hurry and get in the bed. And I'm running into the bed as fast as I can. I, I mean, as a little kid, um, man, alive, every noise on Christmas Eve, that night when you're trying to go to sleep, I mean, you just, it's like you've had about five cups of coffee and you can't go to sleep. You're just excited. Um, and birthdays, really, I mean, <laughs> the older we get, I think the less and less we celebrate birthdays. I, I, I don't know. No, not, 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 I, I tell you, Rosalie, all right, when did you stop having birthdays? At 29 or 39? Never did, okay. I guess for some people, instead, it becomes a birth month, all right, and we celebrate them for a month, but no, those are good days. I think adding to that is really this idea that there's another special day in our lives when we're showered with gifts. I don't think a lot of us realize the extent of those gifts or what all we've received when God's given us those gifts, but it's our spiritual birthday, the day that Jesus Christ became our Lord and Savior. Uh, I remember back at church camp growing up they would sing this song and you were supposed to stand up uh, as you sang the verse and it it went something I'm horrible at this you might have to help me Uh, but it says uh, I was saved on a Monday and people who were saved on a Monday would stand up and I'd look around I was like I don't remember what day of the week I was saved you know I I do know it was a Sunday because I was in church but uh, you were supposed to stand up. A lot of people can't remember the day uh, of the week or the day of the month or the month or whenever it was that they're saved. doesn't mean that they're not saved. I don't want to put so much emphasis on a moment. But the moment that you were saved, that you believed in Jesus Christ by faith and you were saved, is your spiritual birthday. And I wouldn't ask this morning if you know what your spiritual birthday was. If you don't remember it precisely, there's no problem in that. God absolutely knows that. The most important thing is that you are saved. 
And so with the spiritual birthday, the day that Jesus came, we often say, into our hearts, we know what we received, a little bit of it. We received salvation. We received forgiveness, eternal life, a heavenly home, being brought into God's family. We were justified uh, on that day. Uh, we received the greatest joy as we were brought from the kingdom of darkness into the light of the Lord and so many other things. But I don't think we always grasp that God added some additional gifts to our lot. You know, a lot of times when we're opening presents as kids, it's all about what's under the tree. And then as an afterthought, it's, hey, what's in the stocking, right? Well, God gave us salvation, all these gifts under the tree. But what's over here in the stocking is these spiritual gifts that he's given us that are no less important and maybe even as valuable as anything else he's given us. But it's a gift. And that's really what Paul is talking about here. In 1 Corinthians 12, these spiritual gifts, Paul teaches. And I don't... I have some of this on the screen. You guys can follow if you want to read in your Bibles too or take notes. 1 Corinthians 12.1 Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren. You know, he's talking to Christians here. He's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it's really important, the audience, because he's talking to us too. I do not want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be uninformed. He's speaking to believers and he's telling us that every believer has at least a gift. God has seen to that. Some have multiple gifts. Unfortunately, a lot of us misunderstand or simply don't grasp the power that is held in those gifts. What a powerful name it is. We sang that. What a powerful gift the powerful name has given you and I. And sometimes we don't even begin to tap in to that power. And so... As we look, there are four main places in the New Testament that speak of spiritual gifts. These aren't hard to remember. There's two twelves and two fours. Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. And here's my definition. There's probably way better definitions out there of what a spiritual gift is. But it's a God-given. First of all, it came from above, from the Father of lights, who only gives good gifts. It's a supernatural ability, something that is beyond what we could do by ourselves. Any of us could be nice to someone. Any of us could go and, and, and shake somebody's hand or help an old lady across the street or uh, do some nice thing. Those are natural abilities. These are supernatural abilities that help us to go beyond what is just a good thing to a God thing in our lives. A God-given supernatural ability gifted, it's all by grace, to every believer at the moment of salvation by the Holy Spirit. Spiritual gifts enable us to perform. That means to actually work, take action, to do something with them. A task in obedience to God's will. God has a purpose for your life. He's gifted you to carry out that purpose in your life for the edification, the growth, the uplifting, the upbuilding, and the blessing of the entire body. Big definition. But that's really putting all the pieces together of what a spiritual gift is. And when you get it, and when you work on it, and when you use it, man, you are being a blessing, and you are blessed, and God is glorified, and it's for us all. And so there's a lot involved in that. Now, these aren't just natural talents. As I said before, they're supernatural abilities, and they're given to each one of us for the good of the church, all right? Uh, I'm going to repeat that same mantra over and over and over again throughout this series. God has given us these gifts to glorify himself and to help grow the church. 
That means evangelizing, witnessing, discipling, serving, all of those things. Your gift is not just for you, and it's certainly not just about you. We didn't create the gifts. I didn't create my gifts. Uh, I didn't perfect my gifts. And so my boasting in my gifts should be non-existent. Instead of boasting, it is praising God. It's a lessening of me. Uh, John the Baptist said, I must decrease so he must increase. When you get these gifts and you start using them and you start seeing how they help people, it's you decreasing so that he increases, so that they are blessed and their blessings increase. And all the while, you're receiving more. That's not the reason why you do it. It's just a natural byproduct of using your gifts. God gets the honor and the glory and the praise. The kingdom reaps the benefits. You receive the blessing simply because you're used by God. He created you for a purpose. These gifts help you to fulfill your purpose. And as you work on them and build them and grow them, you're able to do more with them. It's really a win-win for all of the kingdom of God. When we discover our gifts, when we work at our gifts, and when we use our spiritual gifts. I said last week, a spiritual gift survey or a spiritual gifts assessment, man, it's a, it's a tool that you can use to help you discover what your giftings are. There are other ways as well, though. And uh, one of those is by going to a mature Christian, a friend or a pastor or somebody, and asking them, hey, what do you see at work in my life? What do you see that I, I'm, I'm gifted at? And listen to their answers. Uh, another way is simply by asking God. I mean, that's the simplest thing we can do. God, help me to discover my gifts and help me to use my gifts. A lot of times when we're in the act of working and serving and doing ministry, our gifts are revealed. You realize real quickly, uh, you know, we, we saw some of them go over here with the children, okay? Some of y'all didn't go over there with the children. Some of y'all have been over there with the children, and you realize that your gift isn't over there with the children, okay? But as you're working and serving, these things come, and they're discovered, and then you appropriate those gifts. So here is the whole uh, passage that we're going to look at today, Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. And then I have five attitudes uh, that are belonging to the person with the gifts and that's every Christian so here's what he says for by or because of the grace given to me by God I say to every one of you do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to but think of yourself with sober or sound judgment according to the measure of faith God has given to you what has he allotted you? What has he dealt to you? How has he distributed something to you? We each have this measure of faith from God. Just as each one of us has one body with many members, and not all the members have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many are one body. Each member belongs to one another. We have different gifts according to the grace that is given to us. If one's gift is prophecy, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging or exhortation, let him encourage. If it's giving or generosity, let him give generously with liberality. If it's leading, let him lead with diligence. If it's showing mercy or kindness, let him do it cheerfully. And so Paul really begins this exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. The Bible probably doesn't even mention all the spiritual gifts, especially not in one place, but these are seven that Paul mentions. And I'm going to kind of tap in with his first attitude 
uh, of what we talked about last week. I know it's going to be kind of a repeat and a recourse of it. But the very first, number one, attitude that the spiritual gift and the believer should be exhibiting is humility. Um, we, we, we didn't read it in this passage, but Romans 12 is a powerful passage, and it's a very, very well-known passage. The first couple of verses of Romans 12, uh, Paul is challenging us to present ourselves to God as what kind of a sacrifice? A living sacrifice. Um, and he tells us that we're not to be conformed to this world, but to be what? Transformed, renewed, that we aren't to act like this world anymore. You know, here's the crazy thing. The greater and holier the gift, the more that you are involving yourself with the world, the more tarnished and less used it usually becomes. Bad company corrupts good character. Um, the closer we get to God and the more we humble ourselves before him and seek forgiveness and all these things to be used in obedience, the greater and more pristine the gift appears and it becomes. And humility is this idea. Paul's telling us, I don't want you to miss the point because it's all contextual. If Paul starts Romans 12 with transformation and renewal and how your mind ought to be, and then the very next thing he says is talking about spiritual gifts, they're related, right? As a man thinketh, so he does. That's what scripture teaches us. And so what's happening here? How you pursue your gifts, how you use your gifts, should be done out of this newly renewed mind. Transformation has happened in your life because of Jesus. The way that you think, the way that you speak, the way that you act, the things that you do, there's transformation involved. Part of this is learning how to use something new, okay? And um, we, uh, listen, there's a debate on spiritual gifts, whether it was an attitude or a talent or ability that you had before that at the moment of salvation becomes sanctified and set apart for God's service. And I absolutely think God does that, okay? I have no argument with that. Or if it's a whole new gift that God, you know, kind of we explore at the moment of salvation, that may be a spiritual gift. That now that you're in Christ and maybe for the first time your eyes have been opened and it's been revealed and you have to learn how to use it. Well, one of the greatest ways to learn how to use those gifts is by finding somebody in the church that is gifted and emulating them as they emulate Christ. It's not to put a person on a pedestal, but it's to follow someone who's following Jesus. And that helps you mature in your giftings and develop them. Guys, our new life in Christ is radically different than our old one, especially in our attitudes, our mindset, and our thoughts. So this renewal of mind, this transformation matters as it applies to spiritual gifts. And Paul's not limiting his instructions here in Romans 12, 3. He says, to everyone who is among you. None of us are off the hook on this one. He doesn't mince words when he says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. If you come into church with a proud mentality, thinking that you're better than anybody else in this church, you're not in God's will. You're not doing what God desires for you to do. This creates in us the, the power that he draws in us leads us to deeper humility. Who was the most powerful man that ever lived? Jesus. Who was also the most humble man that ever lived? Jesus. And so in this, what we find is a meekness. And meekness is really power under control. 
You know how powerful you are. You know how gifted you are. You know who your Savior is. You know that you can do all things through Christ. But it doesn't lead you to be proud like you have made those things happen. Instead, there's a humility that says, my God can do anything. I can do anything that my God tells me to do because he's not going to lead me astray. He's not going to leave me. He'll never forsake me. If God calls me to it, he'll lead me through it. If God sends me out somewhere, he's going to equip me for the fact. And there's this humble confidence that should be in the believer. Not arrogance, but a meekness. It's humility. Four times in verse 3, Paul uses the form of the verb phroneo. It's our English word to think. Think about what you're doing. When you're gifted, when you're interacting with someone, when you're speaking, when you're typing on social media, think about it before it's done. When we're transformed in Christ, how we think changes. It ought to. Redemption, when you're saved, it results in humility instead of pride. Humility is essential as you're exercising these gifts because it reflects Christ's attitude. And Christ's attitude was one of humility and obedience to the Father. That's how we're to do it. You know, my little six-year-old was sitting here leaning on me this morning. He said, Dad, I have a question. I said, hold on, man, I'm worshiping. He said, no, I, okay. I said, what's your question, man? When Jesus was baptized, did he have to ask God into his heart? That's a really good question. That's deep, man. He said, or did God ask Jesus into his heart? And I was like, Dad, God, man, these are hard questions to answer right now. And trying to explain it very quickly there. But you know what? I told him, I said, um, those are good questions, but Jesus didn't have to ask God to save him because Jesus was God in the flesh. And this is a real quick answer while you're singing, Teresa. And I said, the important thing is, is that Jesus set an example for us. And he's like, oh, okay, okay, I got it. I got all the theological down. I, I just digested Grudem's systematic theology book in 15 seconds. Um, the point being in telling that story is that Jesus set the example for us. How you use your gift, how you act, how you serve, how you treat people, how you speak, how you think, do it as Jesus did. Let that be your guide. Let that be your goal, okay? God's given each of his children this measure of faith. A measure is a standard of faith. Uh, Terry Littrell could come up here and give us a lesson on a plumb line better than anyone probably could as a plumber. A plumb line is the standard, the perfect measure, the thing that we build everything else off of. Jesus is our plumb line of faith. He's our standard of faith, our measure of faith. In that measure of faith, we have not only a standard. Humility has a standard, okay? Christianity has a standard. Listen, guys, we can't live and act and do everything that the world does. Even though we're trying to reach the world for Jesus, there are standards that Christ has set. To go outside the bounds of those standards is to sin. Humility keeps us in the boundaries, according to the standard, in line with the plumb, measured out. And so there's a standard. Jesus is our standard. But with that standard is also a quantity of faith. Man, there is this unending fountain which never runs dry. If you feel like your faith is weak, you go to the fountain. God provides the faith 
for us to believe and trust in him in obedience. In humility, we keep coming before him. First, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, I, I read from 1 Corinthians 12 earlier, but I want to read verse 11. I don't have this on the screen. Just listen to it. Paul speaking. But one in the same spirit works all these things. He's, he's working everything together, right? He distributes spiritual gifts to each one individually as he wills. And so even though I wish I had the preaching ability of Charles Spurgeon, or the wisdom of Adrian Rogers, or the singing ability of Phil Wickham or Chris Tomlin. Because God has gifted those people to the kingdom, we are all blessed. I don't have to be those things. I don't have to be you. You don't have to be me. It frees us because in the world, what are we doing? There's comparison with everybody else. Oh man, I wish I was as good as, or as pretty as, or as smart as. And God says, no. I made you just like I wanted you. And there's this humble understanding in that that God loves me. He created me. He made me. He's using me. I'm fulfilling the purpose that I was put on this earth for. And there's humility in that, but there's also this great exaltation and excitement that's being returned to him. And so a couple of verses later in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18 Paul says, but now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, the church, just as he pleases. And so you start looking around and you think, well, I always wondered about old Mickey, but God put him here, didn't he? That's a joke, Mickey. I always wondered about old Philip. God put Philip here for a reason. I always wonder, I shouldn't say old in front of everybody, should I? Because now I'm fixing to say a woman's name. Uh, God put Dale here for a reason. God put you and me here for a reason. And he didn't put us here to be exactly like Dale or Mickey or Philip. He put us here to be different than them so that we could complement one another so that we could do more and reach more and serve more and to get into places and go in ministries to places that others can't or don't or aren't gifted or called to go. It's a beautiful thing how the Lord has set the members in the body just as he pleases. The exhortation is that we don't hold an exaggerated, overinflated, proud opinion of ourselves or our gifts. We're not the end-all, be-all. We're not better than other Christians because we have more of some gift than anyone else. And if you and I keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as the standard, what happens is pride is crushed. Service is exalted. Love is grown and shared and built. And so the first attitude you're to have is humility. The second is unity. This is verses 4 through 6. Paul used the analogy of the body and human anatomy over and over and over again in his writings. I mean, it was something that you kind of uh, pay attention to. He also used uh, the marathoner and the athlete and the victor and the victor's crown. Like, these are things that Paul is just a theme throughout his writing. And Paul points to Jesus Christ as the head as well as to the church being the body. And now, our bodies aren't just singular, but they're also plural. And what I mean by that is every one of us only has one body, but the body consists of a lot of diversity, meaning that multiple different parts making it up. Um, in these verses, Paul said, we have several members. So we being many have many gifts. There are plural gifts. Man, 
the whole kingdom of heaven. I would, I would venture to say, and I don't know this for sure, but every gift that God has possibly created is somehow represented in this church. Some way. And that's a crazy thought, but if we knew them and used them and shared them and gave them the things that we do, we would be a representation, however small it is, or a reflection at least, of the fullness and the glory of heaven on earth. He has gifted us so much. Without diversity in the body, we would not live. It's a very simple analogy. If your lungs aren't lungs, instead you have three stomachs, uh, you're going to die. Some people have more than one stomach, I think. Um, An unhealthy church. Now look at this. I put this up here. It's characterized by all the same people of all the same age, of all the same race, with all the same gifts, who think all the same way and do all the same things, and not surprisingly, that church dies sooner than later. I don't care if it's a church of all 80-year-olds or a church of all 20-year-olds. If there's not diversity, then we're not representative of what the true body looks like. Because one day in heaven, every tribe, every tongue, every culture, every skin color, every race, from every nation on the face of the earth will be represented there. They are representatives and ambassadors here today. The kingdom of God is diverse. I'm not saying that uh, we do things that are uh, really outside of our abilities, but I'm just saying that it doesn't matter what age you are, what your background is, where you came from, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're young or old, whether you're black or white or any other color, that God not only made us all different, but he gave us all different gifts to be used for all different purposes. And that's the diversity of heaven represented in the church. The earmark of spiritual health is diversity, but with a common purpose. Rick Warren. Um, There are some really, really good things that Rick Warren does, and, and this is a great quote of his. Organizing around the gifts of your people allows the church to focus on ministry and not maintenance. I have had to chew on that for a minute. But when we do what we do, wrapped around the gifts of what all of us have, we can minister deeper, further, wider, farther, and we don't just have to worry about insulating ourselves in this church house. It's not just about maintaining what we have. It's about doing beyond that to ministry. He says, a gifts-based ministry encourages teamwork. It also makes us better use of the talent around us. Why else do you think God brought this talent into your church? It wasn't just to sit there and to watch. Building your structure on the gifts and talents within the church promotes creativity and allows for growth. Unity. That attitude creates that. Number three attitude is individuality. You find this in verses 5 and 6. We are individuals. And I know that flies in the face of what I just said about unity, but you can be an individual and still be united at the same time. Um, You remember Dennis Rodman? Anybody remember him? Now, I want to go before Dennis Rodman was wearing wedding dresses and all that stuff, okay? Like back when he played for the Bulls and the Pistons, he was still kind of a unique character, okay? I'm going to leave it at that. But... Dennis Rodman, there was no doubt. I used to watch the Bulls play primarily because of Michael Jordan, but I always wanted to see what color Dennis Rodman's hair was going to be. Remember that? He was unique 
But that dude was a team player. Nobody could deny. He was defensive player of the year so many times. He was always on the all-defensive team. He was a role player on that team. Sometimes he would score maybe two points, and he'd have 25 rebounds. He wasn't the limelight guy. There was unity with that guy on the team, even though he was a unique individual. Now, what we're saying is when you're a body, it doesn't take away your uniqueness. Sometimes it enhances it. You have a beautiful gift for teaching, a beautiful gift for singing, a beautiful gift for serving. Whatever it is, that unique ability of yours plugged into the team, it lights up the engine that runs the kingdom. You can be you in a body and do amazing things for the Lord, and it doesn't take away from your uniqueness or ability. So this individuality, the question is, do you know, and I wrote this up on the screen, do you know that you are essential and indispensable to this church? I don't think most people know that or realize that. Do you realize that there are certain ministries and assignments that will only happen if you do them? That's uniqueness. There's an individuality and uniqueness in the body. Verse 4 said it. Verse 4, 5, and 6. They're, they're repeating what I'm saying here. Or I'm, I'm exposing, trying to, what the Scripture says. Verse 4 said, All the members do not have the same function, meaning that they're not homogenous. Is that right? Verse 5. So we being many are individually members of each other. Verse 6. Having them gifts differing. There's difference about us. When God saves you, he gifted you uniquely and individually. Emma has different gifts than I have. I can guarantee she's way more patient and kind than probably I am. Um, Roger, you have different gifts than I do, than your wife does. In fact, a lot of times we celebrate the differences that God gave us in marriage, right? Uh, we would all, a lot of us would say, man, when God brought me and my spouse together, we couldn't have been more different. But do you know that those differences are what make your relationship so powerful and unique? My sweet wife has so many beautiful qualities and spiritual gifts that are so different from mine. Sometimes that leads to tension. Sometimes that leads, and I'm not just talking about in our marriage, but in any of our marriages, Sometimes that leads to conflict, right? Sometimes that leads to button heads, like we're a couple of rams. But all the time, when we use those gifts together, how God has made us and created us, there is something more powerful. We call it synergy. When one and one equals three, like how could that be? That all the gifts that you have, coupled with all the gifts that you have, equals more than just two. It's more than you could do on your own. There's a supernatural allowance that's produced in that communion. No one individual has all the gifts, and no one gift is for all individuals. For God's church to accomplish what God deserves. Isn't that a thought, by the way? I want to pause right there for a second. What does God deserve from your life? You ever thought about that before? What does God deserve from this church? Yeah, you could talk about that for a few more days. For God's church, us, to accomplish all that God deserves, 
each one of us must do what God saved and gifted us to do which will often mean that we don't act alike, we don't look alike, we don't serve alike. God has uniquely designed you to do what only you can do. And the question is, so what are you doing? What are you doing? And if your answer is nothing, uh, I'm not going to chide you or scold you. But just know that God's not pleased when we do nothing with the gifts that he's graciously given us. We're not in obedience or we're not walking in accord with God's will when we're doing nothing with what he's given us. The fourth attitude is balance. You find this really in verses four through five as best as I can see. The balance and focus of our unity is that we're a body. We're all unique, but we're all together. And when that's coupled in humility, it creates unity. We're not lone rangers. No one is an island unto themselves. Christianity does not work well that way. But we're a body. Verse 4 says one body. Verse 5 says one body and members of each other. The crazy thing is, is that you need me and I need you. That's a very hard thing to digest because the whole world all around us and every marketing ad and every advertisement and everything that we're ever told is that you alone are unique and special. You're the gift. And a lot of times I think we buy that hook, line, and sinker and think, well, that means I'm better than everyone else. But in God's economy, we're equal. No man, no woman is greater than another. We're all leveled out at the foot of the cross in this place of desperate need where extravagant grace meets us and God finds us and saves us and delivers us and uses us. There's balance. And I is no good unless there is a head to turn it. An eye is really useless unless there are feet to mobilize it. A pretty face or a chiseled body, they're nothing more than nice-looking corpses without a beating heart and lungs. Balance. I use a body analogy to talk about the church. You take away some people you remove some people, you, you um, shun some people, whatever it is, and you're taking away healthy body parts that the body really needs to function the right way. Finally, it's only a fool that attacks him own, his own self or her own self. What kind of a body turns on itself? Well, a body that's doomed to destruction, an unhealthy body. Our bodies, as God designed them, are not made to attack themselves, to cut off other body parts, or to harm other body parts. Here's the deal. You can see this real quickly. If my liver hurts, or if my gallbladder hurts, it doesn't just stay centralized to that one place. Typically, if my liver hurts, my back's going to start hurting. My head's going to start hurting. There's different parts of me that start hurting because one part in me is hurting so badly. And the same is true of the church. I mean, there's no difference. That's why Paul uses this analogy. Our bodies go into action when one body part is hurting to attentively mobilize help to the hurt member. You ever wonder why you get so tired after you eat a big meal? All the blood is going to your stomach to help you digest that triple portion plate that you just ate that you shouldn't have. Uh, the rest of the body is saying, hey, toes, you probably don't need all that blood and energy supply right now. The stomach does. 
whoop, comes up here, helps him digest everything. And, and that's not just something that hurts, even though you can get what we call a bellyache from eating too much. Whatever part of your body hurts, the other parts of the body, the brain is the central command system, is sending things to it to help uh, alleviate the pain, to pain, the fire neurons, to bring white blood cells or whatever it may be to help that body part. And that's how the church is supposed to function. It's how we should function. We belong to Christ, but also to one another. Our gifts are designed to glorify God and to edify the body. And the fifth attitude is simply this, action. It really doesn't matter if you have all these other attitudes, the, the humility and the unity and uh, the individuality and the balance if you don't do something with them. Action, verses 6 through 8. In these verses, in 6 through 8, in, these, in this passage, Paul addresses these seven spiritual gifts that we read about a moment ago. But the Greek word here is the word charismata. Charismata is what we call them. And we oftentimes talk about the charismatic gifts. Well, there was something very charismatic about what God gave us so that we would be attractive to the world. When on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit came down and all of these things were being exhibited, the attraction wasn't to, hey, look at Peter, he's speaking in Chinese. Look at Paul, he's over there speaking in Arabic. Look at James, he's down there speaking in some tribal language from Africa. It wasn't like, wow, aren't they awesome? Every one of their messages was united in telling the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of them were proclaiming the goodness of God and how people could be saved. It wasn't about a person, it was about Him. And so all of these charismatic gifts, these spiritual gifts, by the way, charismata means grace gifts, all of these gifts given down from heaven were meant to attract a lost world to Jesus. What has been placed inside of you, this treasure, this grace, this gifting, is meant to attract people to you, through you, to Jesus. It's a light in the darkness. Follow me. It's not my light that shines. It's the light through me. Follow me as I walk with Jesus. Follow me as I lead you to Jesus. And so there's action involved in this. The charismatic, the, the charismata, are vital for the church's health, unity, and growth. Here's what I would say, too. As Karen Maloney is using her spiritual gifts for the glory of God, she is growing healthier as a Christian. There is more unity between her and God. There is spiritual maturity and growth happening. As Karen Maloney uses those things plugged into the body the body can't help but do the same thing if every one of us brought our offerings unto the Lord and I'm not talking about money our time, our talents, our treasures, our gifts, whatever and we put it together and we pulled it together and we used it and acted on it, this church what could she do heaven only knows Grace gifts are a gift from God to you. You don't earn them. You don't deserve them. They're not of yourself. Any gift God gives you, including your salvation, listen to this, is always meant for more than just you. God saved you because he loves you, but he didn't just save you because he loves you. 
That's why we have the Great Commission. God saved Randy Lillard so that Randy Lillard could go and lead other people to God. Any gift, and I will say that boldly, that God gives you, is always meant for more than just you. You're always blessed to be a blessing. These gifts, these spiritual gifts, these charismata, the grace gifts are no different. You have to put your gifts into action just as you put your faith into action. What does the Bible tell us? James tells us, works without faith is dead faith. Otherwise, you may say you have faith or claim that you have this great faith in God, but if you don't do anything about it, it's not only not evidence, it's not real. What are you doing with it? I would say the same thing is true about gifts. If you don't exercise them and use them, uh, this precious thing that was given to you and to more than just you, you've squandered it, you've wasted it. John Piper wrote a book years ago called Don't Waste Your Life. The primary target was college-age students, but it's good for any of us as believers. And this is how I would close. Don't waste your gifts. If you waste your gifts, you waste your life. This life is far too short to waste these things that God has given us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, this morning, I pray that the message resonates in me and every person that heard it. Uh, it's not my message. I'm not trying to get glory from it, Lord God. I want you to get glory. I need to hear it. I know we need to hear it. Lord God, let the Holy Spirit do something special in us as we contemplate our spiritual gifts. Let us not put them up like trophies on a wall and say, yep, I've got that one, and I've got that one, and I've got that one. Instead, let us take them down. Let, them, let us use them. Let us use them like tools, like pipe wrenches, like lawnmowers, like trucks, like every other thing, Lord God, that we put to use as a tool in this world. Let us use our gifts. And Lord, I pray that uh, we would begin to experience how breathtakingly beautiful and unique you have made us, but also how it's so much more than just about us. God, will you grow this church up? I pray that for not just this church, but every other church, every assembly church, every Pentecostal church, every missionary Baptist church, every Southern Baptist church, every, uh, every church that's out there, Lord God, whatever we differentiate ourselves and call our names by, however we try to sectionalize ourselves, that the truth is that we're all members of one body. We're all a part of the bride. Let us be a microcosm of that here at First Baptist Lowell, that every person is working together, united in body and spirit and growing, that all the churches, Lord God, of all the denominations are working together and using our gifts and growing so that the light overwhelms the darkness in this world. Because God, right now, it feels like the darkness is winning. I pray, Father, that we would get together, that we would humbly, graciously serve you, that we would seek out what you've done for us, what you've given us, that we wouldn't hide it under a bushel, that we would expose it. Even if it's something you're calling us to do that maybe we fought you over for years, that we don't want to do it because it's uncomfortable, you would call us back to it, God. I pray, Lord God, the gifts that we've put on the shelf and haven't used for a long time wouldn't just be wasted. That even today, when your mercy is new, your grace is still good. Your power is still present. That you would take those long 
disused gifts and pull them back to us and say, Lord, here it is. I tried to get rid of it. I tried to squander it. I tried to waste it. I tried to be like the prodigal and just use it for my own glory and gain. But today, Lord God, today in your presence, I present it to you. And I pray, Father, that you would dust it off and shine it up and make it something that I can give to you for your glory. Lord, I don't know where we're at. I don't know what we've got. Lord, I don't. But I know we've all got something. Some of us have more than one something. Lord God, I pray that it becomes so real to us, so important to us, that we use it, that we put it into action, that we wouldn't waste our lives. Lord, I ask all of this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, for your glory and honor, for the blessing of your people, for the salvation of the lost, for the growth of the kingdom. In Jesus' name.